Week four in an eight-week series on union with Christ, which I've said is the key to knowing and enjoying God. Union with Christ. We heard it read in Ephesians this morning. In Him, in Him, in Him. That's the focus of this series. Um, If you missed it, a quick recap, and then we'll dive into today's content. But first week, we said that Christianity is not a religious checklist. And if there's one point, it's this. Christianity is not a religious checklist. It is an invitation to be united with the living God of love. If there's one point of the series, that's it. The entire point of creation and of your life is to be united with Christ, to be in communion with God. Two weeks ago, I defined what union is. I said, through faith, by the Spirit, Christ dwells in you and you dwell in Him. So His benefits are now your benefits. He does not send you a gift card of His love and forgiveness. They come to you in Him, the benefits of Christ. In Christ, you are the righteousness of God. And then last week, Bishop Ken was here confirming 17 of you. Well done, Advent. Um, And he talked about the image of God in us being restored, that he, he was looking at identity, but particularly through the lens of image of God and how we are marred masterpieces that the Lord is repairing. Um, so just the, the example that, come to, woo, that came to mind for me was Michelangelo, Michelangelo's Pieta. Have any of you been to St. Peter's and seen it? This beautiful sculpture, the only one Michelangelo put his name on, and it's in St. Peter's, and it's Mary holding the crucified body of Jesus. And um, in 1972, a, a crazed Hungarian named Laszlo Toth came in and shattered that, that um, beautiful masterpiece with a hammer, 15 hammer blows leaving parts of the sculpture marred and in tatters. God has united himself to you, but you are his masterpiece that has been marred, but he is restoring you in his image. And that was Bishop Ken's sermon. If I were to summarize it, I'd use the quote from Eugene O'Neill, who said, man is born broken, he lives by the mending, and the grace of God is the glue. So that was last week's emphasis, identity and the image of God being restored. This week, I want to look at identity again because it is so foundational. I think one way to think about the spiritual life and the Christian life and maturing in it is essentially coming to increasingly live out of who we really are. And so we're going to look at identity again, but this week through the lens of adoption, through the lens of adoption. Psychologist David Benner defines identity like this. Identity is who we experience ourselves to be. It is the I that each of us carries within. So the simple aim, maybe lofty aim of this sermon is that when you think of who you are, the first thing that flies into your heart and into your mind would be this, I am a beloved child of God. And well, maybe like me, you've heard that a million times and you grew up in church and you've been to all the Sunday school classes and you've heard preachers talk about it. There's a little bit of you that's like, "Ah, okay, but is this anything more than just kind of religious fluff? Is this, is this just Christianese? Now, what difference does it make that I'm a beloved child of God? That's what I want to explore this morning. I want to start by examining the trouble with the way we as moderns tend to approach identity and questions of who we are. And then I want to move into exploring how a God-given identity as adopted daughters and sons um, is strong precisely where the modern approach is weak and wanting. So before we turn to the scriptures, I want to look at the modern approach to identity formation. I would say that moderns conceive of identity formation in four ways. And this is oversimplistic, but here's my attempt. Identity is fluid, identity is internal, identity is individualistic, and identity is constructed. 
So it's fluid. It's something that's in flux, always changing. And life is essentially a a journey to discover who one is as it shifts and changes. That's the first one. Identity is internal. It is found only within. Identity is individualistic. It's, It's entirely up to you. And it's no one else's business, right? And then identity finally is constructed. You must craft it. You are a brand, and you must build your own brand. Wilborn calls it, in his book that I'm using for this series, Union with Christ, he calls it, Choose Your Own Adventure Identity. Any of you grew up reading Choose Your Own Adventure books? Yes. Um, So first I want to acknowledge what's good here. I mean, Thomas Jefferson penned the value of um, every individual into the American soul at the founding of our nation when he wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created, created equal with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, in many ways, Jefferson's words are an echo of biblical truth, aren't they? Every individual is a pieta, a masterpiece worthy of rights. And this is what is best about American individualism. Though too often in our history, we have to admit, when we read all men here in Jefferson's words, um, functionally that's been replaced with powerful men. Um, And the powerless have suffered grave injustice as a result. Still, the ideal is a beautiful one, isn't it? A biblical one. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, there are no ordinary people. He's reflecting on the image of God in human beings. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals with whom we joke and with whom we work and marry and snub and exploit. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. This is a beautiful and biblical truth, which should have kept our country away from things like chattel slavery and its ongoing legacy of oppression, just as it should lead to greater protections for unborn children, and it should lead to greater support for impoverished or single mothers today. Every individual is a pieta worth prizing and protecting and and appreciating. So where did things go wrong? Lewis says that if we could see ourselves and see our neighbors and the ones in this room around us, if we could see them with spiritual eyes for who they really are as immortal beings created in the image of God, we could see their real beauty, we'd be tempted to worship them. Tempted, he says, but we ought not to because when we worship something that is too small to actually receive our worship, we actually become reduced in the process. We become smaller. And could this be the problem with choose your own adventure identity? Choose Your Own Adventure Identity has exchanged worship for the Almighty God, the great I Am, with worship of the Almighty Ego, the great I. My identity is my own, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you most of all, you stay out of it. This worship of the individual identity is arguably on display in Justice Kennedy's infamous declaration in the 1992 Supreme Court case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. He writes this, The heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And we read that, and it sounds great. It really does. I mean, it sounds great. But is it? In Casey versus Planned Parenthood, we know, you know practically what this meant was surely not that all people get these rights, but that powerful people do. The powerful always end up preying on the weak, don't they? History shows the, the naivety of such an idea that I mean, we could list endless examples from history, but we only need to look in my own household, actually. Imagine telling my four children 
Each of you is a God unto yourself. No one can tell you who you are or what to do or how to live, so just go nuts. It's chaos. And that's pretty much how it is already, so I don't necessarily need to tell them that. Um, The point is that some level of individual identity formation is important. It is. William Wilberforce famously was a 19th century abolitionist who who drew on this biblical teaching, every individual a masterpiece in his fight to eradicate slavery. Yet, Yet modern individualism, as we've seen, just it goes well beyond this value for the individual and it turns into worship of the individual and In a sense, our sense of identity is reduced by worshiping a God that is too small. So let's look briefly at a few of the problems that come from modernity's choose-your-own-adventure approach to identity and then turn to the scriptures for a better way forward. Four things. First, choose-your-own-identity is paralyzing. It's paralyzing. Now, it's one thing to set out on on an adventure. You go out your door and you're going to go on an adventure and you think, do I take this road or this road? Do I take the road less traveled or, or the wide road? Um, it's another thing for a child to just be shoved, a child, just imagine, like shoving them out the front door, the entire world is waiting, and you just give them the burden of deciding who to be and where to go and what to do, when, with whom. It's overwhelming. I mean, can't you see a, a child, a kid in this scenario, looking back towards the door, and, and they hear this muffled shout from behind the door, good luck, you know, it's all up to you, don't trip on your way out. It's overwhelming, it's paralyzing. We need guidance in our lives, don't we? Second, choose your own identity is exhausting. In The Weariness of Self, Dr. Ehrenberg assesses why depression has become empirically one of, well, the most diagnosed mental health disorder in our world. Dr. Ehrenberg's conclusion is that this stems from a huge rise in feelings of inadequacy. And those feelings of inadequacy, inadequacy ultimately come from the way that modern people conceive of identity and of success. Namely, he says like this, we conceive of identity and success. Success is attributed to and expected of autonomous individuals. See, when you think you are entirely responsible for your success or your failure, your everything, then your emotional life is just an endless, exhausting roller coaster following every upward and downward turn of your circumstances. You know, it's... it's, Good grades in school, I'm smart. Bad grades, I'm dumb. You know, the popular kid in school likes me, I'm, I'm great. Doesn't, I'm the worst. Um, good financial report, I'm a success. Bad returns, I'm a failure. Great job, no job. She loves me, I'm lovable. She breaks up with me, I'm pitiful. I'm recognized and I'm celebrated, I'm valuable. I'm overlooked, I'm insulted, I'm worthless. And my kids are behaving, I'm a good parent. My kids are throwing a fit in public, I'm an awful parent. I overcome temptation, God likes me, God loves me. I fall into temptation and sin again, God hates me, I'm ashamed. It's exhausting, it's exhausting to live that way. Third, choose your own identity is unsatisfying, it's unsatisfying. What has become one of my favorite TED Talks, The Paradox of Choice, which I've referenced quite frequently, secular psychologist Barry Schwartz names the unspoken but official dogma, he says, that we live by as moderns. He says, maximum happiness comes from maximum autonomy. 
The goal of life is to maximize individual freedom, which is accomplished by maximizing choice. And he substantiates his claim as he goes to the supermarket and he finds 175 different kinds of salad dressing. Everything is a matter of choice, he says, even our identity. He says we don't inherit an identity anymore. We get to invent it and reinvent it as often as we like. And it's tiring work, he says, because to decide all over again every morning who we are and who we want to be, it's exhausting. He recounts shopping for a pair of jeans. Do I buy Buttonfly or, or Zipperfly? Do I buy Relaxed, Easy, or Slim Fit? Do I buy Stonewashed or Acid Washed? And he says, I walked out of the store with the best-fitting jeans I've ever had in my life, and I did it better, but I felt worse than ever. Why? His conclusion is, is that this extreme proliferation of choices dramatically increases our expectations. You know, if we just keep searching, we'll find the perfect thing. It'll make us perfectly happy. And ultimately, this desire, which is wrong and misleading, leads to a deeper dissatisfaction with the choices we have actually made. So take marriage, for example. Now, we will become, as spouses, increasingly unsatisfied to the degree that we live in a constant state of comparing who we married with others and wondering, what if, or if only, if only my spouse was different in this way, or if only they responded like this person does, and if only they had done this. If we live in this if only will always be unsatisfied. Others have trouble committing to relationships. They have trouble committing to jobs. They have trouble committing to churches or to communities because they are haunted by this possibility that they're missing out on something better. So they just live life never satisfied in the present gifts of what they have, of what's before them, hungering after a fantasy. It's no way to live. Choosing your own identity cannot be as purely preferential as choosing a pair of jeans or what kind of ice cream you're going to get. You know, it's unsatisfying. And you're always wondering, should I take this pair of jeans back for an exchange? Is there a better one? So it's unsatisfying. And fourth, choose your own identity is imprisoning. Now there's one way to make sure that you do have complete autonomy. Isolate yourself. Um... And the famous example of this is, of course, Elsa singing Let It Go in Frozen, right? Wilborn points out the irony that she's letting it go while she's building an ice castle, an ice prison. She's building herself a prison, right? There's one way to make sure no one can, can, can really mess with your sense of identity. Isolate yourself. This is captured nicely in W.H. Auden's poem. He says, Each in the cell of himself or herself each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his own freedom. Almost convinced, because really we do desire someone to bear witness to and affirm our identity. We, we desperately want someone else to tell us, we're doing okay, we're going to be all right, we, this is who you are. And that's the paradox at the heart of this modern sense of wanting to define ourselves all, all by ourselves. On the one hand, no one is allowed to mess with our completely individualistic, internally constructed sense of identity. You cannot mess with that at all. The only voice that matters is the voice of the almighty I. But then on the other hand, there seems to be this insistence, this desperate need that everyone else validate and celebrate and affirm the identity that I choose. And so perhaps choosing our own identity leads to an insecure identity. And that's why we need others to relentlessly affirm. We are imprisoned in a trap between our commitment to individualism and our deep desire for someone else to affirm who we are. So where does this leave us? 
Choose your own adventure identity, I've said, is paralyzing and exhausting and unsatisfying and imprisoning. In his just-released book, You Are Not Alone, Dr. Alan Noble compares the modern self to a captive animal, and we are going to get to the scriptures here in just a second. It's, it is taking too long. Um, a captive animal who, um, who has what he calls, well, what um, people call zoocosis. Zoocosis. Have you heard this term? It's for when an animal in captivity paces back and forth on a small little trail, wearing the grass thin in one small tread, kind of neurotically. And he says modernity is like a cage that we are put in. Supposedly, it's built for our comfort, for our welfare, but it's left us more anxious and more isolated and more disconnected, and we're pacing anxiously back and forth between our our self-constructed identity and the deep need for others to affirm us. There's a better way. Ephesians 1, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And he goes on, in him, you also were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people. So who, who do you experience yourself to be? What I do you carry within? Now, if you have been united with Christ and the Word of God then invites you to take this truth fully on board, I am a beloved child of God. Nothing you did, but because of the glorious grace he freely bestowed. How? Here we come to these two great words, in him. Because he marked you and sealed you as his own through his spirit, you are a God's adopted daughter. You are God's adopted son. It's the truest thing that can be said about you. Adoption is defined as when the child of a stranger is received into an enduring bond in a family, keywords here, so as to convey to that child all the rights and benefits that belong to the natural children and heirs. So the natural children, the natural child and heir, Christ himself, the adopted children, us, all the benefits that belong to Christ are now ours in Christ. The scriptures teach that by uniting himself to you, the living God has adopted you. The Father initiates this, the Son accomplishes this, and the Spirit applies and assures us of our belonging as God's children. So how does, how does this address what is amiss with the modern choose-your-own-adventure quest for identity? First, it speaks to our paralysis. Our adoption gives us permission to rest. To rest. Life still has a nearly limitless buffet of choices that it lays at our feet. And it can be overwhelming. It can be paralyzing. We do not need to walk out the door alone. We have a constant companion, a holy and blameless and present and loving Father who calms our fears And he gives us his wisdom and helps us along the way and gives us a secure hope. He knows where he's taking us and we will get there. Romans 8, 26, the spirit helps us in our weakness. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God is glorifying you. You can be confident of this. You can rest in this truth. He knows how to write straight with crooked lines. 
And as you navigate the twists and turns of life, you don't have to live with the sense of, oh my gosh, am I getting it wrong? Walk with Christ. He'll bring you there. You can rest. The one who calls you is faithful. So who are you? You are his beloved child. Don't be afraid. Second, to our exhaustion and our anxiety and depression, stemming from a need to justify our existence with our work and our accomplishments and our popularity or whatever, our adoption tells us we are chosen and beloved before we did a single thing to earn it. Like a baby who's adopted into a family. The baby's done nothing. I mean, actually, they're an inconvenience in so many ways. But they're loved deeply. Why? A decision. You are not adopted and loved because of a single thing you did or did not do. And as the bishop said last week, there is nothing, nothing that you could do that would make God love you any more or any less than he already does. So you don't have to perform. You don't have to prove anything. Your life can be undergirded by the sense of belovedness. So who are you? You are his beloved child. You can rest. You really can rest. Third, to our gnawing dissatisfaction. Our adoption as God's daughters and sons through union with Christ, it awakens us to the reality that Augustine beautifully put words to millennia ago. He said, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, until they find their rest in you. And many of you have experienced this to be true. You've gone looking for things to satisfy, to fill, and you've been left with dissatisfaction. You've been left with addictions and things leading to the way of death. And finally, you've surrendered to Christ and you've felt this sense of satisfaction and peace finally fill you. Because, in the words of Philippians 4, Christ teaches us to learn to be content in every circumstance. In plenty and in hunger and abundance and in need, we have our daily bread in Christ, don't we? Who are you? You are his beloved child. You will always have enough in Christ. And to our desire for limitless freedom, that actually ends up imprisoning us. Our adoption into God's family gives us life-giving limits. Limits that we need, actually, to thrive. Did you notice in the words of uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Ephesians, choose, God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. So it sounds like there's actually some amount of obligation on our part. Like maybe there are some limits to our behavior, how we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to do, and what we're not supposed to do. What's the deal with that? Here's the deal. Being holy and blameless does not make us his beloved children. Got to get that clear. Being his beloved children makes us holy and blameless. The order is very important. Barry Schwartz's TED Talk, again, he goes and he, he looks at a fishbowl, and he asks of the fish in the fishbowl, are these fish free? I mean, they have confines around them, don't they? The fish, the fishbowl, they're confined. But he concludes, if you shatter the fishbowl, so that everything is possible, you don't have freedom at all. You have paralysis. Everybody needs a fishbowl. Again, secular psychologists. The absence of some metaphorical or I would say spiritual fishbowl is a recipe for misery and disaster. When a child is adopted, they do receive an incredible gift of love and belonging. But they also receive new limits. They receive a fishbowl, don't they? A new family a new set of expectations, of limits, of guidelines. Now, in the Roman world, adoption was far more frequent, frequent than it is today. Often it wasn't amongst young children. It was actually young adults or adults themselves because many people were trying to secure an heir if they didn't have children. They were trying to secure an heir for their inheritance. Now, when this happens, it has a legal dimension and a familial dimension. The legal dimension of adoption was the person is taken out of their former context 
All the old debts that they owed are canceled, erased. They're given a new family name, and they become a full heir to that family's inheritance. Okay, that's the legal dimension. And that corresponds to, in our salvation, J word, guesses? Just, justification. Our debts are canceled. We're forgiven. Okay, that's justification. But the familial dimension of adoption comes out in, we call it sanctification. The familial dimension is too often overlooked because there's this legal change, but that legal change begins life in a new family, right? As an adopted son or daughter with a new father, a new family, a new set of guidelines. After, after someone in Roman society was adopted, the new paterfamilias, the new head of the family, now owned the adoptee's property, controlled the adoptee's personal relationships to the extent that they wanted to, had the right to discipline them. The Lord disciplines those he loves. An adopted child now had to learn to live within the new life-giving boundaries of a new fishbowl, which provided them the security and the nourishment that they need, actually, to grow and to thrive. So that's, that's the healthy fishbowl that we all need, not like my fishbowls, um, where all of my fish quickly died from ick, that white, you know, we couldn't keep a fish alive in our house. Um, John Calvin spoke of the double grace that comes through us, to us through adoption in Christ. The double grace, he says, justification, the legal dimension, we're forgiven, and sanctification, the familial dimension by which we grow up into Christ-likeness. He's restoring us into the masterpiece, right? The pieta. Here's the point. He's canceled your debts. In that sense, you're blameless. It's done. The work of Christ is finished. You are the righteousness of God. But now you live in intimate proximity to a holy and blameless Father. And in your new home, your heart begins to change. It begins to become a little bit more like His with time. It's the holy opposite of what too often happens in my house. When I say or do something, and then the next day I see my son or daughter say or do something I'm not particularly proud of, and I, oh, I see where you learned that, you know. I see where you picked that up, and I'm humbled and slightly embarrassed. It's the holy opposite of that as we pick up our Father's habits our Father's way of being. And he teaches us what it's like to be holy and blameless before him. So we're in that process, right? And it's okay to be in that process, but it's a process that comes first by way of our legal adoption. Now, we don't do this first so that we can be adopted. We're adopted, therefore we do this. So who are you? You are God's beloved child. In his limits, you actually find your freedom. Sisters and brothers, what I what, what I do you carry within? You do not have to choose your own identity. That's the good news. Go ahead and try it. And many of us have, I certainly have, and certainly sometimes still try to. It will leave us paralyzed and exhausted and unsatisfied and imprisoned. But if by faith and baptism you are in Christ, don't you know that when God the Father speaks to God the Son in Mark 1, he's speaking to you. When Jesus comes up out of the water after his baptism, what does the Father say to him and to you? Don't listen to the almighty I trying to define yourself. Listen to the words of the great I am who is defining you this way. You are my beloved son, and in you I am well pleased. It's just, those words are so beautiful. I hope you just let them sink in. In you I am well pleased. You are his beloved child. You do not need to be afraid. You are his beloved child. You can rest. You really can rest. You are his beloved child. You will always have enough. He will give you your daily bread. 
You are God's beloved child, and he will father you into freedom if you let him. Galatians 3, in conclusion. For in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. There is neither single or married. There is neither student or professional or retired or newborn. In Christ, you are one. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Lord Jesus, I pray you would help us to apprehend this truth a little more deeply this morning. That is, even things come up in our own hearts, lies about ways we're tempted to define ourselves or ways others are attempting to define us. This week as we go and set about the things that you've given us to do, would you remind us again and again every morning of our belovedness as your children, that we don't need to be afraid, we don't need to be anxious, we don't need to strive, we can embrace who we are as your spirit lives within us and is restoring us into your very image. In Jesus' mighty name we pray these things. Amen.